we're going to do something that um, is somewhat unusual, I guess, um, this morning, which is we're going to bypass the primary um, purpose of this passage. Um, We have, in past weeks, explored the central and chief meaning of Matthew, namely that Christ did what we could not do. Christ was the better Israel. Christ fulfilled our call to righteousness on our behalf. And He carried our debt on His shoulders to the cross. And He was raised again on the third day. And by virtue of His work, we can be reconciled to God. That Everything we've sung this morning is pointing in that direction. And that is the chief meaning of this passage. Okay, Christ's temptation in the wilderness... And his spotlessness through that temptation means that when you fail to resist temptation, you can be covered by his blood. Okay? That's that's the chief and central meaning of this passage. However, the scriptures call us not merely to acknowledge and appreciate the work of Christ, but to follow Christ. Okay? So the second meaning of this passage is what we're going to hone in on this morning. I'm I'm following the way of Hebrews 12, which we just recently studied. Um, I'm going to pull that up right now. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to whom? Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, that passage is an application passage, right? That passage is calling you to do something, namely to follow Jesus, who looked to the joy set before him and for that reason endured the cross. Okay? Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. This passage in Matthew is written against the backdrop of Israel's history. And you can't really get what's happening here, I don't think, unless you've put it in its context. Now, my central claim this morning, and what I think is the central claim of this passage, and the central claim, one of the central claims of the Bible, is, uh, is this. The question is, how do you respond to temptation? How will you Respond to temptation. I think you can predict how you will respond to temptation by the answer of this one question. Is the joy of the kingdom worth the cost of the wilderness? Okay? Is the joy of the kingdom worth the cost of the wilderness? And if you can answer that question, yes, then you will fly by temptation. But if, if your answer to that question is, I don't know, or maybe, or uh, I kind of hope so, temptation will haunt you. 
Okay? So that's the central claim of, uh, of this morning, and I think it follows the central claim of the passage. So let's, I want to read together from Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 16. Okay? Now, Mo, this, this passage is, is set in uh, the beginning of the story of Moses. So Moses was rescued from slaughter. Um, Pharaoh had, had commissioned his guards to slaughter the children of Israel. Um, and, uh, and, and Moses was rescued from that slaughter, and he was cast into the Nile River, and he was found by uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. So N- Moses was actually raised in Pharaoh's house. He's royalty uh, of a sort. And, um, and, and then he was, by virtue of a series of events, cast out of Egypt... And, uh, and wandered the wilderness until one day God presented himself to Moses and began to commission him to lead his people out of slavery. Okay, that's this, the context of this passage. Now let me read to you from verse 16. God is speaking and he says, Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Sorry, lost my place. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, listen to this, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, okay? I promise you that I will deliver you from slavery to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So that's the, that's the proposal. Moses approaches the people of Egypt with this proposal. God has spoken to me, and he has promised me that he will lead you out of slavery into a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now, just to keep this top of mind, skip forward to Exodus 13. Just to keep this top of mind, after Pharaoh finally decides to release the slaves of Egypt um, and to allow them to go worship their God, right? Right on the heels of that, God again reminds the people, I promised I would do this. Okay, listen to this. This is in chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service. Okay, so... Is anybody at this point doubting that the people of Israel have heard and understand the promise that right on the other side of the wilderness is a promised land flowing with milk and honey? Does anybody doubt this at this point? It's top of mind, right? If, if I believe God, then I believe that on the other side of this wilderness is a kingdom flowing with milk and honey, right? Okay. Now, as soon as Israel enters the wilderness, a pattern emerges. And you can see this in Exodus 16. Exodus 16, just a few more pages. 
start in verse 1. They set out from Elim, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, aptly named, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Okay, right on the heels of the miraculous provision of God and the promise, God swearing that He would bring them to the promised land, which is a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Good food, right? Right on the heels of that promise, they step into the wilderness and they start to get hungry and the first thing they say is, I wish we would have died in Egypt because we had pots full of meat. Okay? See that? All right, let's keep reading. One chapter over. Verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Same problem. They've heard the promise that there's a land flowing with milk and honey and that God will take them there and they don't believe it. All right? Here's the lie that the people of Israel are believing. They believe that the joy of the kingdom... The joy of the promised land isn't worth the cost of the wilderness. In fact, they're saying, I'm, I'm going to die in the wilderness. You, you're not even able to bring me to the promised land, God. I'm going to die here, and that cost is not worth that. Like, sure, land flowing with milk and honey sounds great, but if we die in the way... So the lie they believed is that the joy of the kingdom isn't worth the cost of the wilderness. And the pitch is... And you've got to sort of see through their comments to get this. Because the devil's uh, influence on the people of Israel, the enemy's temptation on the people of Israel isn't explicit in this passage. But you can hear by their words what lie they're believing. Okay, The pitch is, you can enjoy the perks of the kingdom without the cost of the wilderness. Okay, you following me? You can enjoy the perks of the kingdom without the cost of the wilderness. To see this most clearly, just go back to chapter 13. They said, no, not 13, 16, sorry. Chapter 16. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. We could be happy and healthy if we just go back to Egypt. We could be happy and healthy if we just turn back, right? You remember, mm, you remember those pots full of meat? That bread? 
It's better than the wilderness. We know God's not able to deliver us. We know God's not able to deliver us to the promised land, but, but man, remember those pots of meat and that bread? You following me? Okay. That which has sort of been implied in the story of Israel is made explicit in Matthew 4. Okay? So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read first from 1 to 11, and then we're going to take it in pieces. Everybody there? Okay. Then Jesus, when Jesus, let's put this in context. Then Jesus. Look at 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What I want to do this morning is I want to take these three temptations in turn. I want to kind of look at what's being promised. You know, what's, what's being offered here? And I think we're going to see some parallels with Israel's story. All right, look, first temptation. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think this is probably one of the most significant understatements in the history of the world. <laughs> After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay. What's the temptation? A supper. A supper on the enemy's terms. Okay? A supper. Seems relatively benign. As these temptations unfold, they get more aggressive. All right, look at the next temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay? 
Temptation 2. An indestructible life. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. All right, now, keep reading. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Temptation three, a kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation. I think you're probably starting to see where I'm going here. Now, if we back up, I kind of blew through this. Israel had a joy set before him. That nation had a joy set before them. And that that joy was that on the other side of the wilderness, there's a kingdom flowing with milk and honey. And that's my gift to you. And if you'll follow me through the wilderness, I'll take you there. All right? That's the joy set before Israel. What's the joy set before Jesus? A wedding supper of the Lamb. An indestructible life for He and His people. A kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation. Do you see what's going on here? Like the, the enemy took the vision that was driving Jesus. And that's the source of his temptation, right? He says, make yourself bread. You can have a supper now. He says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Look, you already have indestructible life. See? He says, hey, all you have to do is worship me. You can have a kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation. Woven into this passage is the lie that Satan is attempting to pitch Jesus' way. And that lie is that the joy of the kingdom isn't worth the cost of the cross. Okay? In fact, you don't even have to worry about obedience. You don't even have to worry about the cross. The pitch is you can enjoy all the perks of the kingdom without the cost of the cross. See, in both cases, in the case of Israel and in the case of Christ, we have Satan offering lesser but immediate pleasure at the expense of lasting joy. You following me? Lesser but immediate pleasure. Look, in both cases, the pleasure that's being pitched is of a sort, of the kind, of the joy that's set before them. Right? So what makes Jesus distinct from the people of Israel? What makes Jesus distinct from the people of Israel? I'm going to pitch to you that the distinction of Jesus is his single-minded obsession with joy. I want to read again Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, I'm going to propose that from the beginning to the end of Matthew, we are presented with a portrait of Jesus who is single-mindedly obsessed with the vision of the kingdom. He is single-mindedly obsessed with the vision of the kingdom. And that's why he doesn't even flinch when the enemy tries to tempt him away from the path of obedience. doesn't even flinch. All right, let's, let's look closer in Matthew. I want you to turn to Matthew 13, 44. Now, this is a two-sentence parable that is lovely. And almost every time we talk about it, we talk about it as instructive. But I'm going to propose that it is not only instructive, but it is autobiographical. Autobiographical. One of those two. Whichever is most appropriate. <laughs> Autobiogra- autobiographical. Okay. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, yes, you are that man. But place this in the context of the Son of God who set aside all of His glory to win the kingdom. Set aside all of His glory. And He took on flesh and He dwelt among us. And He lived a righteous life and He bare He bore our sins on his shoulders and he he went to the cross. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when Jesus found found it, he covered it up. And then in his joy, he sold everything and he bought that field. I think at least a little bit, this passage is autobiographical. All right, let's look for more proof. Matthew 16. you got to love Peter, right? Peter is me. Peter's probably you sometimes. Peter's one of Jesus' best friends, and also Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's put that in context. Let's look at verse 23 of chapter 16. Let's start in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What happens when one of Jesus' best friends begin to suggest that he does not have to die to earn the kingdom. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't do that. You don't do that. There is no way to earn the joy of the kingdom 
outside of the cross. And the only person who supposes that that can happen is the enemy. Not even momentarily distracted. He says, get out of my way. You're a hindrance to me. Okay, let's keep reading. 26, Matthew 26. Get a glimpse of the prayer life of Christ just before the cross. Jesus went with them to a place, this is in verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even bearing the heavy burden, his pending death and torture, bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders. He says, if it's possible, if there's any way, but not, not my will, your will, kingdom, kingdom. Even if everything between me and the kingdom is something I don't want, kingdom. Okay, just a few more verses. 53, chapter 26, verse 53. Again, Peter's kind of making some mistakes. Listen to this. Let's go with uh, verse 51. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. A whole group of people came to arrest Christ in the garden, if you don't know this story. And Peter, we know from a different gospel, Peter pulled out a sword and went to fight on Jesus' behalf. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It says, you've read the Bible, I've read the Bible, we both know that for the kingdom to be established, I need to die on behalf of my people. And at any moment, I could rescue myself from this suffering, but I'm choosing not to so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Kingdom. Right? Single-minded obsession with the joy of the kingdom. God, 
put, put this in context. Like Christ is walking around Israel, perpetually being challenged by guys who are twisting the words of God. Perpetually surrounded by faithlessness. People running to Him all the time for the things that He can offer them. And at any point, He could just be done. At any point, He could call down legions of angels. At any point, He could give up. And He says, the Scriptures must be fulfilled in order to have the joys of the kingdom. Okay. So, how did Jesus resist the temptation of lesser immediate pleasures? Jesus is characterized by a single-minded obsession with God's promise of joy. Almost at this point, I almost read Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. (laughs) That would have been a lot. We're not going to do that. But if you want the, I think, crystal clearest prophecy of what needed to happen in order for God's people to be rescued and for a kingdom to be established with no more pain and no more hunger and no more sorrow and no more sin, read Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. And I think that when Christ is walking in the dark valleys, when He's surrounded by faithlessness, I think He's thinking about, all I need to do is suffer on behalf of my people. Just a little while longer. Just a, will, just a little while longer. And on the other side of my death, there's a kingdom. A blood-bought people. Rescued. Reconciled. Singing praises forever and ever. Christ is single-minded about the kingdom. I think it's because he's obsessed with joy. Taryn, like that I use this word obsessed? I think it's because obsessed is associated with a whole lot of sin. What if our faith and hope could be characterized by that word? Obsession. Jesus was obsessed with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And if you're obsessed with joy, lesser pleasures can't distract you. What's crazy about this passage in Matthew 4 is it doesn't even think like Jesus flinched. Even flinch, right? Man doesn't live on bread alone. And don't test God. Go away. <laughs> Go away, Satan. If you can become obsessed with joy, you will become immune to temptation. And we dance around this all the time. Uh, half of our application points dance around this notion. If you're trying to defeat sin and you're facing sin, you will fail. The only way to to defeat sin is to be facing the kingdom. 
That, that's what Christ was doing. Okay. So, for our benefit, I have put together a little pamphlet, How to Resist Temptation, a step-by-step guide. Okay? Pardon the cheesiness. How to Resist Temptation, a step-by-step guide. I am pulling from many passages. I have them written down. Come see me. You want to talk through them. Step one, become obsessed with joy. If we envision the kingdom and we dwell on that vision of the kingdom and remind ourselves all the time about the kingdom, we'll begin to become obsessed with the kingdom. Now, I wrote Study the Promises of God. I had a whole list of passages that I wanted you to read. I actually wrote, read, I wrote this as my first bullet point, but I thought it was a little silly. Read Revelation 21 and 22 50 times. That's what I mean. We, I fear that evangelical America has began to champion discipline at the cost of anticipation. Yeah, yes. Self-control is a fundamental aspect of your relationship with God. It is a gift of the Spirit. But don't begin to imagine that you are being obedient for obedience' sake. You are being obedient for the kingdom's sake, for rewards' sake. Read Lewis's Weight of Glory just this week. It's short. 15 pages or so. Okay. Study the promises of God. It, uh, there's, I roll my eyes because I'm a child of my culture. When I see books that are just the promises of God, I'm like, oh gosh. But that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Dwell on the promises of God. Dwell on God's promise for those who will conquer. Read Revelation 21-22. Read, read the letters to the churches. At the end of every letter, there's a promise. Jesus Himself makes a promise to those who conquer and they're sweet and they're beautiful. Let that become your vision. Okay? Against that backdrop, once you have sort of faithfully cast your hope in the coming kingdom, once you've colored your hope in the coming kingdom, and it's not some vague concept, but you've nailed it down on about 50 different passages, once you've got that vision of the joy set before you, contrast that with the promises of the enemy. How many people do you know who have said, I was miserable? But then I had that affair, and man, I've been happy ever since. Have you ever met someone who said that? The history of the world is punctuated with moments of radical sin. 
And we haven't yet found the secret of happiness. Right? Follow, trace the logic of your temptation. Trace the promises of your temptation. And then set those next to the joy of the kingdom and see which stands up. Okay? Third, develop a craving for the presence of God. Pray. Matt Chandler described the the life of Jesus as being strangely and regularly punctuated with his long absences to pray in the wilderness. I don't think that's an accident. Pray without ceasing means never stop praying. That's what it means. And we are given a foretaste of the fellowship of God in the kingdom by being able to boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace because of the work of Christ. Do it and sit there. I've been reading Ecclesiastes lately, and there's this line in Ecclesiastes that says, when you go to talk to God, be silent most of the time. (laughs) I didn't even have a category for that. Dwell in the presence of God and develop a craving for that presence. And let it drive you to the kingdom where His glory covers the earth. Amen? Okay. And then, fellowship with God's people. We get glimpses of the kingdom when we spend time together. Right? You sit at a table with the body of Christ. You sit at a table with your brother or sister in Christ and you just dwell together, you enjoy food together, and you talk about your struggles, you talk about that which is encouraging you, and that's that which is haunting you, and you, you laugh and tell jokes. That's a glimpse of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay? You just do it as, as often as possible. Spend time with the brothers and sisters. Okay, step two. Trust God. What was Israel's problem? Do you think it was really that, ah, I don't want to spend 60 days in the wilderness. That sounds tough. I don't like being hungry. That sounds uncomfortable. Do you think that was the problem? I don't think so either. I think fundamentally they didn't believe that God could bring them to the promised land. And if they got there, they didn't believe that that promised land was flowing with milk and honey. Trust God. I think the way to do this is simple. Read His words and weigh them. You can't read Matthew 4 without seeing how saturated Christ was with the Scriptures. It might even be worth doing a whole sermon on the hermeneutic of Satan... And how quickly Jesus says, nope. Brett and I were talking about this this week. This is a, this is a messianic psalm. Like, Satan is cunning in his comprehension of the mission of Christ. And he goes to a psalm about Jesus, and he tries to use that psalm to shift Jesus away from the path of obedience. And Jesus is so saturated with the Scriptures, and he so understands the Word of God, that it doesn't even phase him. Read God's word and weigh them. And consider his character. There's much 
in the scriptures about the character of God. Consider it. Think about it. Dwell on it. Juxtapose it with the character of the enemy, the character of the world, the character of your neighbor. This is something that I don't think I think about enough. I don't think we talk about it enough. Reflect on how he's related to you personally. Testimony is important. Testimony is important. Sometimes we boil down testimony to a series of theological concepts that string together to the redemption of God's people. That's fine. But it's going to be a pillar around which your faithfulness pivots for you to remember how he's treated you and how faithful he's been to you and how he's cared for you. And then once you're saturated in his word and you understand what he's like and who he is, and once you remember how he's treated you, you've got to make a decision. Are you here for this world or are you here for the next? Okay? Trust God. Step three, despise distractions. I am drawing these from that series of passages I read in Matthew. Christ would not be distracted. He would not be distracted. In fact, Luke says some people didn't even welcome him because he had his face set towards Jerusalem. He is single-mindedly pursuing. And anything that would, would, would push him in another direction was rejected. I heard somebody once say, Christ didn't just turn away good opportunities, he turned away great opportunities. Villages full of people who were still coughing and limping, but he had his face on the kingdom. Even good things can be distractions. Okay? So, crush anything that doesn't foster kingdom hope. That sounds really abstract. Let me give you an let me give you an, a, a, a for instance. Um, I watched a television show I really liked once. I got to like the second season. And then I saw something in my heart. I saw that this show was teaching my heart to long for the things of the world. All of a sudden, I started to think that like this guy's disposition, this guy's this guy's uh, world, this guy's relationships, this guy's money and power were attractive. So I stopped. You, don't, you already have you. You don't need somebody else telling you that the world is worth paying attention to. Okay? So anything that you put in your life that's optional, that doesn't foster kingdom hope, just crush it. Get rid of it. Eliminate anything that might interrupt obedience. It's fairly straightforward. You saw this when Christ called out Satan. Oh, no, surely you're not. No, you don't need to die. Get behind me. You're a hindrance to me. Just, just no. Okay. 
and call out behaviors, actions, and ideas that undermine your pursuit of joy. And finally, look to Jesus. We have spent some time now in Hebrews. I think that one of the central meanings of Hebrews, one of the maybe the point of Hebrews is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He was tempted, and so he can sympathize. He bore our weaknesses so that he can sympathize. He made a way for us so that we can approach the throne of grace. And this one's painful, that he was willing to die on behalf of the kingdom. And we're told to follow him. In fact, Jesus says, you can't follow me unless you're willing to pick up your cross. Finally, he will reward those who conquer. Revelation, first few chapters of Revelation are punctuated with promises of reward for those who conquer. I'll just read a couple to you. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I'll give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That is magical and mysterious and beautiful. (laughs) To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. Look to Jesus, who himself was willing to lay down his life on behalf of the kingdom, and who promises kingdom joy on behalf of those, or for those who will follow him. Okay. Let's pray.